This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former prison guard elite endurance athlete and the co-host of the fight with teddy atlas podcast ken rideout so in this incredible conversation we discuss a host of topics from ken's early life in boston his journey into corrections entering the world of finance his own battle with opioid addiction his incredible metamorphosis through endurance events the growth mindset of overcoming addiction how he avoids overtraining and injury, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ken Rideout. Enjoy. Well, Ken, I want to start by saying thank you so much to Shay Eskew, our mutual friend, for introducing us, and I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So, opening question, where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I am in Nashville, Tennessee. Beautiful. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline, because I know that's not your place of origin. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
Uh, yeah, I was uh, grew up in in uh, inner city in Boston. I had uh, two siblings, a brother and a, and a stepbrother. And I, uh, my parents were divorced and my mom was remarried. So we lived with my mom and, uh, most of the time with my stepbrother's dad. And for a while, like prior to that, like whoever my mom was dating. So it was just incredibly unstable and, uh, unhappy to say the least. We were talking about combat athletes right before we started recording with Boston. I hear a lot of times people say it was a very rough upbringing. I did a lot of fighting. Did you have that when you were growing up in that city? Oh, for sure. It was, um, <laughs> there was, uh, nothing nice going on there other than, uh, my personally with sports. I, I, I was heavily involved with sports, played, um, ice hockey growing up, um, at a very competitive level, I played with a lot of kids. As as a child, I played with a bunch of kids that ended up playing in the uh, NHL. Big, like, NHL All-Stars. Keith Kachuk, Matt, Sean McEachern, the Sacco brothers, Joe Sacco. I think he's now the GM in Colorado or something like that. But, yeah, there was it was very competitive. And then I went at university. I played uh, football and ice hockey. Beautiful. Well, with, um, with that kind of... Uh being surrounded by all these people that did go pro kind of what were you dreaming of becoming career-wise when you were in school was it the professional athlete at that time definitely uh had delusions of grandeur with playing hockey and it wasn't until probably second or third year at university where i was like oh shit i better stop paying attention here because this ain't happening i i'm gonna have to get a real job like and that's you know I don't know what you, how I would describe it, like part of my misfortune of having not a lot of guidance as a kid because I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I had to figure it all out as like, you know, a 19 year old kid, you know, who didn't have many mentors or advisors or, or guidance counselors around me. And, um, it was a crash course in adulthood and I didn't do very well at it at times, but I've always, I mean, could argue, I would argue I didn't do very well because I ended up addicted to opioids at some point to kind of deal with the, the emotional turmoil that I was feeling of being in this like kind of world without a safety net. And not to like say like, oh, woe is me, like I deserve pity. It's just the reality of the situation. I was just woefully unprepared to be an adult. And now I'm, you know, living in New York, working in finance. And, and very quickly, I had some financial ses- success again, not trying to give a sob story, but like that came with a whole host of other um, concerns, like imposter syndrome, fraud complex. Like I was just overwhelmed. I had so many new responsibilities that I just wasn't prepared for. And when I discovered opioids, I was like, oh, this is a nice escape from the anxiety and discomfort that I feel 24 seven in my, in my own life. And um, thus began like a 10 year odyssey of uh, being a functioning drug addict 24-7. Now, that was when you got into the world of finance, is that right? Yeah. Okay. So prior to that, correct me if I'm wrong, you were a prison guard? Yeah, I was was a correction officer at the Billerica House of Corrections um, from starting the week after I graduated high school and throughout most of the university. So like during the school year, I might work two or three shifts per week typically like four to midnight, um, occasionally midnight to eight, they'd put me in the uh, tower and, you know, I'd do study, I'd study and get a bunch of stuff done out there. I try to, um, 
but yeah, worked in the prison from 18 to like 21, 22 years old. It's the worst job I've ever had in my life. It's still a horrible place. One thing that I've made observation of, and again, this is from the outside. I, I don't work in prisons. I was a firefighter and a, and a paramedic, so I got to go into them sometimes when an inmate was having a problem, but that was about it. But when you think about a prison guard, they are in prison along with everyone else. They have to stay That's behind right. those four walls. They don't get to see daylight very often. So, so why was it the worst job for you? Um, every single person in there is miserable from the inmates to the, to the guards. And I think that the guards at times were worse than the inmates. They were some of the worst people that I've ever been around in my life. Now, not all of them. I've had some of my best friends in the world I met there. But they were a fair share of scumbags, too. And um, it was funny. I was like, when I started, 18 years old. And like, there were guys in there, they were resentful of the fact, you know, they probably viewed the, the summer guys or like the part-time guys like me as like political hacks. Like, we obviously knew someone to get the job. The guy who was the warden happened to be the high school football coach of one of the teams I played against. He knew my kind of backstory, took an interest in me and, and, and got me a job at the prison. Um, but there was resentment from some of the older guards and it was literally like situations where they were like bullying me. And, and that was all new for me. I mean, I played quarterback in college. I was far from a dweeb, but you know, I was like, you know, I, I had some self-respect. I, I, I was far from a tough guy, but I at least carried myself with integrity. So to now be getting bullied by people who I deem to be complete fucking losers was incredibly difficult to swallow. But again, when you're 18 and the guy's like 30 years old, it's like, you know, looks like one of my friend's dads. I'm like, Jesus, like, I don't want to have a physical altercation with him. But growing up the way I grew up, I was always like, it's much better to get beat up and to fight and lose than to not fight. And, um, you know, it was just constant conflict. So it was always like, you know, feeling like, okay, we're doing this, you know, like I, I, the amount of times where I've said to someone, fuck it, let's do it. I'll see you out in the parking lot when the shift's over, let's go. And I'd show up, they'd come down, realize their job is on the line and then try to like find a fucking exit as quick as they could. You know, they'd try to play a fake tough guy, jump out of the car like they're going to fight. And I was like, are you going to fucking talk about it or do it? And eventually they would, I knew that they weren't going to. <laughs> so I just kept showing up and praying that they wouldn't want to actually fight. And thank God they were smart enough to know that either they were going to fight with me and win and get fired or catch a beating from a young kid. And uh, I liked my chances. But, yeah, it was that. that. So when you, when, I, when you hear it described like that, you kind of get a picture of, like, what was going on here. It was like you had the inmates on one side trying to get over on you 24-7, and then you had these fucking scumbag guards trying to, like, stab you in the back any chance they got because they were just, like – spineless jellyfish themselves one they were like one break away from being inmates themselves most of them not all of them like i said there were some really good people there but there were also a lot of scumbags so one thing that shay told me because i asked him you know what are some unique things that maybe a lot of people wouldn't have asked him before but it was about the fact that at one point you had family members in that prison you were working at is that correct everyone did everyone who worked there had either friends or inmate or, or family in there I was um, one of the guards who worked with me. There was actually Mickey Wood, who they made the movie The Fighter about. And um, his brother, who's played by Christian Bale in the movie, his brother, Dickie Eklund, who almost also a famous boxer for Sugar Ray Leonard. Um, he was an inmate there while we both worked there. So this was not like 
some crazy like anomaly, like, oh my God, your his, this one's friggin' uncle or brother or stepfather is a prison inmate here. It's like, this is like inner city stuff. Like everyone there is intertwined. Kids I went to high school with, kids who are related, that was not anything out of the ordinary. So how did you navigate that dynamic? You know, you, it's a friend or a family member that outside those four walls you would have been, you know, interacting with normally. And now you've got this power shift, you know what I mean? That in a positive well, way. Yeah, well, luckily, my stepfather was there when I was still in elementary school, and my brother was there after I worked there. So they weren't there while I was working there. But like for people like Mickey, whose brother was there, and they were close, they just typically like station you somewhere away from wherever the family member was. So like, you know, the prison is so big, it's like going into work for a cop on roll call, like, all right, you're taking, uh, you know, fucking Times Square. All right, you're uh, you're going to Harlem. Like different precincts, basically within the prison. You could be positioned anywhere. You could be on the like outside security at the at the like you know the gate where they bring in the ambulances and the transfer transport vehicles. Sometimes I'd be working on that gate transport, and I wasn't um, in the early days when I wasn't qualified on the like on um, gun. You know, you had to be qualified to like be issued a gun, and the only people that have guns at the prison are external. You can't be in the prison with a weapon. So if you're in the prison, you don't have anything. There's no stick. Like people think it's like Shawshank, like a guard walking down the tier, like banging the fucking bars with a stick. Like you wake someone up in a prison like that and do something to disrupt an inmate's life like that, you will get stabbed. No question about it. You do not play games in there. This is the people live there. It's not like a movie. It's a lot of mutual respect shown and given uh, and if there isn't there's a problem i mean they, these guys are not these are fucking hardened grown men criminals they will punch you in the face before they say please or thank you um so yeah i was working in the uh, outside and the guys would come and hand me their guns which technically i wasn't really supposed to be handling i've never i wasn't qualified on but that's the way this place operated, man. It was like so cavalier. So the guy would hand me the guns. I have no holster. I have and a 357 Magnum is super heavy, big gun. So I'd have one in my pocket, one tucked in the back of my belt because, you know, there'd be two or three guards coming in and they'd have to leave them outside. And uh, one time the warden pulled up and was like, dude, what the hell are you doing? He, you know, <laughs> this was before cell phones and, and cell phone cameras, but it would have been a funny picture because I was like, you know, a skinny little kid with my pants practically around my ankles with three guns, one in each pocket and one tucked into the back of my belt. It just looks crazy. Um, but yeah, that's hopefully that paints a picture of kind of how loosely run this dangerous place was. Well, with that very unique perspective, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who have worked in law enforcement and or corrections, some here, some in other countries. And it seems to be pretty universally accepted now that the way we do prisons, I think they call it the Philadelphia model, where you incarcerate someone, you literally put them in a cell for hours and hours at a time, does not seem to be very effective. You look at, for example, Norway, where their prisoners live in a community of houses. They've lost their freedom. You know, they can't go anywhere, but they have to cook for each other, clean. They have to go to work. They go to school. So they're better human beings when they move back into that community because most prisoners will come back. What was your perspective of the reformation or the, the recidivism, um, you know, the repeat offenders in that, that system? Did you think it was an effective system from the way you were seeing it? 
I don't think that the system could have been less effective. I, I, I happen to agree that the way to um, rehabilitate someone is not necessarily punish them. And that's what prison is, is strictly punishment. There's no rehabilitation going on. Um, you know, even for people that come out and become productive members of society, they do that in spite of the prison system. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm certainly not a like weak on crime type person. I tend to be very conservative in my beliefs, having grown up in the system of, you know, liberal, like welfare food stamps. I don't think that those programs really work. Just like I don't think the prison system works. I don't know that there's an easy answer of how to do it. I know very, I'm very familiar with the Norway and Sweden systems of prison and incarceration, but I think that those societies also have much different cultural norms and in general don't tend to have the violence and um, kind of societal issues that we have in the U.S. That's not to say one's better or worse. It is what it is. But clearly the way we're doing things right now isn't working. You also can't have this no bail system where repeat offenders get arrested, bring down to the station, get issued like some paperwork, and they're right back out on the streets committing the same crime. There's like no rhyme or reason. And I get the reformists that say the prison system doesn't work and we can't keep incarcerating people. I couldn't agree more. This is a fucking waste of time and money to keep throwing people in a cage. But you can't have this knee jerk reaction, just being like, fuck it, let everyone out. No bail. Like anything goes like they, they, No one's being served. Now the people that are following the rules are now having to live with these maniacs that are just smashing out car windows. I mean, San Francisco, you can't even leave your car unattended. It's like free, free open season to just take whatever you want from anyone. And um, so, yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but anyone who would look at our prison system and think it works is insane. I mean, the privatization of prisons only led to one thing, judges sentencing and an exponential amount of black youth to prisons in exchange for monetary compensation. Like people have been convicted of this crime. Can you imagine a world in which someone would take money? in exchange for funneling inmates into a privately funded prison. Like I can't think of like that guy should be like fucking get death sentence, like to, to, to do something so merciless and heartless to someone. So point is the whole system clearly doesn't work. And the fact that that could happen in this day and age is preposterous. So I could go on forever about my beliefs on, uh, you know, corrections and uh, societal uh, wrongs or norms. Um, but I digress. <laughs> well, these are important conversations, especially when people have worn the uniform. You know, we can all talk about it on the outside, but we don't know. We don't work in a prison. You know, we're not an inmate. So it's listening to people that have been there, I think, that creates this this collage. Everyone's view is a, different, a little different, but there's going to be some real common denominators in there. One thing that was terrifying, I just saw, and I've like a few minutes before we sat down, um, just popped up on my, my feed, a one of those um, kind of... S- almost celebrity forensic experts is always doing these testimonials in some of these big cases, was just convicted of lying completely about DNA. So there were two teenagers that spent 30 years in prison before this was discovered, and they were falsely accused. So this is the... None of this surprises me, though. But fucking people do anything for money, including destroy others. It's it's crazy. Like, if, if you wrongfully knowingly lie and get someone convicted of 16 years, you should do 160 years yourself. Here's the eye for an eye, the two eyes for an eye. I'm all for like, you know, equal punishment. Some people should be punished, but you know, these, this 
current system that we're in is just at times it just feels help. You feel hopeless. And I'd say the same thing for police. You only need one shithead to spoil the whole pot for police. Being a cop is a very difficult job. Personally, if cop pulls me or tells me, get out of the car and put your hands on the car, I'm not with all this. Like, what's the probable cause? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yep, here we go. Hands out thing. I can deal with, if you just listen to them and go deal with the bullshit, okay, there might be an out at the end of this. But I can promise you, when you stop being defiant with them, and there's countless cases like this where someone wants to be defiant and the cop ends up shooting them. I don't want to die to prove a point to you. Like, I don't need to do that. Okay, hands on the car. Cool. All right, let's go. This is, we're going to, I'm I'm in the spider web. I can either flail and fight it or I can just go with it. And hopefully this guy comes to his fucking senses and lets me go. But he has a gun. I don't. And I don't want to die. And that can happen. But the point is, when you have one cop that gets out there and gets over his skis and gets super aggressive with someone and it's caught on camera, you start to turn the public sentiment against cops. And, and I Thank God we have them because if someone breaks into your house, people are like thankful that 911 shows up. So I don't know what the answer is there, but I know that there's like, if I'm a cop and I see someone behaving badly, same thing with corrections officers, you see someone mistreating an inmate or doing something unethical and you don't speak up, you're part of the problem. This fucking guy who's misbehaving is creating this public sentiment that's anti-cop. And if you're one of the good guys, you need to police your own people. And it's very hard to do that because being a, Cop is like being on a on a baseball team. The pitcher on your team smashes someone in the back with a fastball, and you don't come out to fight the other team, even if your guy's wrong. You're going to be ostracized very quickly, and that's I think that nowhere is that more evident than within the within the ranks of police officers. So, listen, I think it's an incredibly hard, tough job. All of those law enforcement, corrections officers, they're tough jobs, but you can't have. A couple assholes in there. They 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 spoil the pot for everyone, especially in the day and age where everything's recorded. It, it's not an easy job. I don't envy those guys, but thank God we have them because when you need one, <laughs> you'll be thankful they're there. Same thing with the MTs and ambulances and, and the frontline, you know, healthcare workers that we have. Um, those aren't easy jobs. Well, I want to get to finance, but just quickly before we do, you talked obviously about um, growing up in in unstable family dynamics when it comes to you know boyfriends and stepfathers etc but you found yourself on the right side of the bars once you got into the prison system what was it about your upbringing that stopped you kind of traveling down the wrong path when you were a teenager yeah that's a good question i don't i don't i don't know i just knew i, I can just tell you that as a child i knew that i wasn't comfortable being around the people i was around and um i knew that i was destined for bigger things than, you know, being a, a probation officer or a, uh, you know, guidance counselor at a prison, which is what I was heading towards when I started working there and was majoring in sociology at a, um, you know, a relatively small unknown university. So at some point, like I said, reality hit me and I was like, holy shit, I've got to get out of here. So I graduated, moved to New York and, um, you know, started working in finance, which, that in itself was a crazy adventure and kind of like with some of the races that I've won recently is the first thing you have to do to win that race is show up. And I always showed up. I was willing to try anything regardless of what the potential outcomes could be. So I had a, a guest on who I think he's from the San Francisco area, but um, he was 
excelling in the world of finance and uh, ended up kind of struggling with a methamphetamine addiction that put him literally onto the streets. So what was it about that environment that you found yourself that was the kind of uh, the genesis of leaning into an unhealthy coping mechanism up to that point you've been able to stay you know somewhat on the right side you know what was it about finance of all things new york that that drove you the other way um again that's a good question i um i because i had been living in and grown up and lived with like such underachievers relative to what i wanted in my life that when i was in this world in new york and 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 started to have some financial success i just suffered badly from this fraud complex or imposter syndrome and fell into uh, had a surgery on my foot and I got some Percocetics prescribed to me. And the first time I tried them, I was like, whoa, my God, I can't believe how good I feel. Like, this is awesome. I can't wait to get a refill next week. And it slowly went from like, you know, taking one or two at night after work to like taking them in the morning to deal with a hangover. And the hangover was from, you know, drinking and drugging the night before. But I was always training and exercising. So I was like, I always jokingly tell people I was like an incredibly effective uh drug addict because i had means to support my habit so i didn't have to steal or rob i had i always had more than enough to do whatever i wanted to do and um i was personable so i was very good at like convincing doctors to write prescriptions for me or finding uh street dealers that i could like interact with without raising red flags and i was just yeah it fucking destroyed my personality it destroyed my sense of self it um filled me with self-loathing that i still struggle with it, like it made me suicidal um it's fucking horrible when i look at it i'm like what a disgusting loser i can't believe i did this to myself like i don't view myself as that i'm a fucking winner but i can't deny that i did this so it's like skewed my impression of myself because i was always like super confident borderline arrogant about my potential and when this happened it like really kicked me in the balls and reminded me like you're not special and now when i do speaking gigs i always tell people like no one is special no one is unique including me including you we're all the same some of us just do some unusual things and have an ability to rise up and do certain things but the same way some people have you ability to surprise to the upside they also have the ability to surprise to the downside whether that's their own self-sabotaging drug abuse uh sexual uh, you know sexual deviance I, i've seen everything in it from so many people I have a really diverse group of friends and um connections throughout the world and um i've seen it all i've seen people do use all kinds of different vices to cope with their displeasure and i always say you know it's not the drugs that are so good that make people addicted it's their it's their discomfort with themselves that's so powerful that they'll do anything to get out of that to get away from those feelings and the only way through the darkness or the only way to deal with the darkness is to go through it it's it, there's there's no other way it's like when you find drugs as a way of coping with your uncomfortable emotional state guess what when you finally realize that this is a losing proposition you no longer just have to deal with your uncomfortable psychological state 
but now you have to deal with withdrawals and the damage that you've done to your brain and your endorphins and serotonin and every fucking chemical chemical plant in your brain has now gone haywire because instead of searching out organic pleasure sense pleasure centers food sex reading a book relaxing those types of like momentary momentary um feelings of pleasure are nothing compared to like the artificial the artificial spike in dopamine or serotonin that you get from taking drugs so now whereas normally you'd have to work hard maybe do a workout or do something to get that emotional reward now it's just you're just giving it to your brain willy-nilly at your own discretion so when you get off that it's months if not years of just being dull, period. And there's no other way around it. And it's intimidating to tell people that because you don't want them to think like, dude, I don't have years because I spent 10 years trying to avoid withdraw the two weeks of withdrawals that I'd have to go through. So I'd go through the withdrawals, get over it, feel like that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And then a month later, I'd be high again. And only, only in the last few years have I been able to establish some serious longevity with regards to my sobriety. But even that hasn't been without hiccups i've made mistakes all along the way no one is perfect and i you know it's embarrassing but it is what it is this is my journey it's part of it has helped me create the life that i've created for myself i don't know that i could have one without the other so i don't know i've tried to figure out a way to be thankful for everything that's happened to me it's a shame this is an ironic sentence it's a shame there's so much shame when it comes to addiction and it's it usually seems to be addiction outside of alcohol because it's fine now you can knock back as many beers as you want and socially we still accept you but you've tried that you know methamphetamine ecstasy you know whatever it was and all of a sudden it's a whole different kind of way that you're looked but ultimately from over 800 in interviews now that i found so often there are things early in life that, that were never addressed never even realized to be addressed that more often than not manifest when we get into our it seems to be like around the 30s time we kind of show their ugly head so have you been able to navigate that because i mean there has to be a self-forgiveness for things that happen you know when, when we're children when you don't have a choice you can't say at eight years old i don't want to live here anymore i don't want to listen to you arguing i don't want to watch you get drunk yeah, but i night. felt all those things even at eight years old i felt all those things i hated it i was um, i was so unhappy i would do anything to get out of there anything for an escape and that's why i was playing sports kind of gave me a, a momentary escape my father would come and pick me up but quickly i realized that you know, was he picking me up for like me to play sports or was it more for him to kind of like live, live vicariously through his kids, you know, and it was just me, my brother, my biological brother um, was the opposite. He was like lifelong heroin addict, never had a job, quit school in the ninth grade, just like complete polar opposite of me. And we grew up in the same house 11 months apart. So it was like, how did one person choose a path of like, dealing head on with adversity and one person just caved to the pressures of life and just couldn't cope with it whatsoever. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I've thought about it a lot, but it was uh, certainly not an easy upbringing. And that this happens so often. I mean, so many people in uniform, it's amazing to hear some of these early stories. And now finally men 
or understanding that it's courageous to be vulnerable. So, you know, people are really opening up to what happened. But so many people that wear the uniform, whether it's conscious or unconscious, were driven to be the protector, were driven to be part of a tribe that is accepting, driven to have a purpose. So, you know, in this audience listening now, I would say that childhood trauma, and it doesn't mean that, you know, it's crippling, but some sort of childhood trauma is is a evident usually in a lot of us is what sends us to this profession in the first place and gives us the tools to see and do some of the things that we have to. I completely agree. I think that, um, <clears throat> like you said, people feel shame and they don't, they don't want to um, share their trauma because a lot of times they don't even think that they've, they've faced trauma like myself. Like I didn't think I had trauma. And um, I recently went to a place called Onsite, which is considered a trauma healing center. But I didn't go there thinking I needed trauma healing. I just knew that I wasn't happy in my current station in life. And I knew that I could be doing better. And it was literally just an exercise in self-improvement. And we're talking about like a four or five day commitment here. No phone. Like it was like I was driving myself to jail. But I knew that I needed it. And I knew that, you know, fortune favors the bold. And I knew that if I could do something bold, maybe there would be a big reward at the end of it. And there was. And um, when I got there and walked through with a therapist, one-on-one therapy with a therapist for like six hours a day for five days, you get deep into your life journey. And uh, we spent a lot of time talking about childhood. And when I went through it, you know, all along saying, look, I don't feel traumatized by what happened. It just happened. Like it is what it is. So as she's writing out, we're doing all these like interactive exercises and putting shit up on the wall and talking about different periods in life. And she's like, what would you say if I told you any of your kids could go through what you went through? Like, how would they handle it? And I was like, they wouldn't, they couldn't. And she's like, yeah, but that's where you're wrong. Like you did. What's special about you? You just said no one's special. I was like, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine this happened to someone else. She's like, so then why don't you have any compassion or sympathy for yourself? Why is it okay for you to have been dragged through hell? But if someone else did that, it would be too much for you to even comprehend and I was like, oh, well, that's a good point. <laughs> that's probably something I should look at. So, but you mentioned about earlier about people being scared to share their vulnerabilities. But I would guarantee you that if you look at guys that these people admire, uh, guys like uh, Jocko Willink or David Goggins comes to mind is like their whole journey is based on them talking about vulnerabilities. It all stems from vulnerabilities. If you didn't feel vulnerable, you wouldn't get up early in the morning and train. You'd believe that you could win without training. And, you know, David Goggins talks about being a big fat so spraying for cockroaches. And now he's like, you know, he doesn't, he he's, does hard shit every day. And that's kind of like, I mean, he has his own journey. I wouldn't compare myself to David. It, 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 other than we're both into exercise, but you know, we're all on our own journey, but that's part of the mindset that I feel like has made me different is consistency. Like I just run 10 miles every single day because it's hard. And the the rewards that I've gained from that level of consistency and commitment have been indescribable. I've become like a world champion marathon runner. I've won huge ultra every distance from 5k to 50 miles um, you know, in my fifties and who would have thought that I would be in my athletic prime in my fifties, but had I not been toiling in darkness, trying to like get over this addiction, 
none of these rewards would have been would have been achieved because I didn't start running to win races. I started running just to deal with my, you know, depression and addiction. And the universe kind of rewarded me for working hard. And now I'm like, get to do podcasts like this and talk about my athletic achievements. Without them, I can't get arrested. No one even knows who I am. <laughs> well, I want to get to to the upswing, but just before we do, you know, you're in New York, you're in finance, you you've found yourself hooked on opiates. Where was the lowest point that you found yourself, and what was that moment that or collection of moments that made you finally have the strength to to start doing something about it? You know, I never had like a rock bottom moment again because I had money, I had shit. I mean, aside from embarrassing myself here and there, you know, in hindsight, I wouldn't say that there was a rock bottom moment. I think that when I went through an outpatient detox, they had me on blood pressure medicine and Ritalin during the day and fucking Xanax at night. It's just dude, the withdrawals, physical withdrawals from opioids is hell on earth. Anyone who can get through that and stay sober to me, I always equate it to like, if you see someone who's huge out of shape, like 400 pounds, then a year later, you see them and they're ripped and they got abs. Like that to me represents how difficult it is to get off opioids. Um, so when I was at the outpatient and they were prescribing me all those drugs to sleep and just to maintain my day-to-day life. Now keep in mind, I've done, I had done all of this like white knuckling. I've just like gone cold turkey and been, you know, like, fuck it. I'm going to like get exactly what I deserve. And that's, I'm going to suffer like a dog with withdrawals. But <laughs> When I finally realized that that was a losing proposition, I went to the detox one night. I got up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night. My wife knew, unfortunately, knew that I was going through this. So embarrassing because my wife is super straight-laced and never has done drugs in her life. Nothing. She's never smoked weed, never seen drugs until she met me. And um, not that I have drugs around the house, but she had never like experienced anything like this. She had a beautiful family, beautiful upbringing, just raised the right way, which is why I married her. She represented everything that I wanted in my life from a family. And um, I woke up to pee in the middle of the night and blacked out and woke up on the floor. Like when I think about all the things that could have happened there, imagine I bust my head open. Like, how do you explain to someone that you passed out in the middle of the night because you're on blood pressure medicine because you're withdrawing from opioids? All the while, like I'm living a successful life, working in finance, living in a beautiful, like crazy glass high rise in Manhattan with views of the river, like just stunning, gorgeous place. I I only remember it so fondly because we took the kids into the city. I live in Nashville now and we took the kids into the city two weeks ago and they were like, wow, we lived here. I'm like, dude, you all live right in that apartment right there. And they're like, oh my God, can we go in? (laughs) And I was like, no, I don't think we'll let us in. But um, yeah, so nothing like stuck out as oh my god i was like found myself naked in a motel full of hookers nothing like that happened um but it was just a culmination of like constantly feeling like a piece of shit so what was the the moment or what were the moments where you decided enough was enough and then what were the the first tools that you used to start kind of climbing your way out um yeah like i I think when we started to plan a family and started to make plans to go adopt my daughter from Ethiopia, that was when I like got for like started to get some longevity with the sobriety. And um, yeah, what was the second half? Um, what were some of the tools that you started using? I know you said you, you, uh, taught, you for example, yeah. you were exercising. Was there, was there a crossover yeah. point there? 
Yeah, no, when I when I was getting off it, like I was starting to exercise and do some cycling and stuff while I had the um while I was still using, but then when I got off it, you know, they at the detox, they were like at the uh, ex outpatient detox facility, I'd go every day. They're like, listen, take it easy, you know, it's cause I was always fit. And they're like, take it easy, you know, exercise. And I'm like, fucking take it easy. I deserve to die for what I've done to myself. I'm fucking training like a maniac every day. <laughs> and I rent. They were like, there's no way you're going to be able to exercise every day with all the shit that we have you on for the next week. You won't be able to do it. I was like, really? I ran every single day, 10 miles. And some days I felt like I was going to drop dead. But at that point I was like, I don't care if I die. Like I, I want to, I, there were moments honestly where I was like, I want to die. I don't, I don't, I, I can't, I don't have the backbone to kill myself. And I don't want to do that to the people around me. But if I die running, that's a perfect scenario. I don't have to do it and I can be done with the suffering. And like, you know, hopefully people listening to this kind of get the message here is that like, this is a fucking losing proposition, man. Doing drugs, putting anything off is a losing proposition, whether it's sobriety, a diet. If you don't exercise like your life depends on it, uh, guess what? You'll exercise when you realize that it does depend on it. You have to take care of yourself. It's the only thing you have control over. Think about it. If you bought a brand new BMW, you wouldn't bring it home and put like shit gas in it. You, if you had like a souped up fucking Porsche, you wouldn't put the cheapest gas in it. Like, why would you ever do that to your body? It's like yours forever. And unlike a Porsche, you're never trading it in. So whatever you do to this thing is going to have to be dealt with. Unfortunately, our bodies are so resilient, you can beat the shit out of it and it can bounce back and can like regenerate. But you can use that, you know, as 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 a repair mechanism or you can use that as a reinforcement mechanism and take what you have and make it better or you can abuse it and let it just retain, re retain the status quo. And it's easy to just be like, ah, fuck you, dude. That who cares? I'm just like chilling. I'm I'm just living. I'm here for a short time, not a long time, or a good time, not a long time. Like, okay, cool. Talk to me when you're on life support about how much good time you're having. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe fucking I'll die of a heart attack next week and we'll be like, I told you too much exercising wasn't good for you. I'll take my chances. When you were talking about being okay if you dropped dead running. You've got, you talked obviously several times now about guilt and shame. One of the real common denominators that comes out of so many people that have been in that dark, dark place is that feeling of burden. Like the brain has become so miswired by that point that it's literally telling the person the world would be better off without you. Your family would be better off without you. Did, yes. did you ever have that yes. voice too? Did I have it? I still have it. Are you crazy? Like I, I, I wrestle with suicidal ideation frequently, but now I have people that really depend on me. You know what I mean? Like I'm not a liar. I can't say that that isn't the, uh, my, my reality that I have this like ideation. I wouldn't say suicidal, like uh, thoughts or tendencies, but certainly the idea pops into my head from time to time, but it's immediately like it, it, it I, I always use this example. It's like in a race. I have two voices in my head. There's one that's like, we're going to get fucking killed. Why are you here? You shouldn't do this. We're going to embarrass ourselves. But I have another voice in my head that's always at least 1% stronger. That's like, fuck you. We're coming for their necks. We're winning this race. These guys are pussies. We're going to smash them. And, and by the way, 
I've said this in a million interviews, reality has nothing to do with this mindset. Because the reality is these guys aren't pussies. These are international like ultra runners that are here to fucking win, that have won races that are tough. But that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what I'm telling myself. And if I can convince myself that these guys are pussies and they're not as good as me, maybe I'm wrong, but that's the process that I've used to win. And that's the process that I continue to use. And when the race is over, I love everyone. I'm so happy. But during the race, I want to win. And that's the only way I know how to do it. There's some people like, oh, fucking take it easy. Let's just have fun. Yeah, cool. For some people, let's have fun. I'm not saying I'm out there committing atrocities or doing anything outside of the bound the um boundaries of the rules but i want to win i don't you know but but at the same time at this gobi march race i was in second going into the fourth day 50 mile stage and the swiss guy was leading and um we were together for about 35 miles and coming out of one of the rest stops, he was struggling. And he had like a 12-minute lead on me. So he had the leader's jersey, kind of like the Tour of France. You know, the leader of the cumulative leader has the jersey. So he says, oh, I got to walk a little. But we're together and we're alone in the desert. So I'm like, all right, cool. I'll walk with you for a little while. Like if we're going to race with 10K to go, 10 miles to go, I'll say, dude, listen, no offense, we got to race. But I'm not going to run away and leave him in the desert because now he's struggling. So... He's struggling more and more. He's like, dude, I, I got to sit down. I'm like, you can't sit down. We're in the fucking desert. So this is just to give you an idea. Like I say, I want to kill everyone. But the minute someone starts to die, <laughs> I stop and save him. So he's sitting down. I'm shielding him with my body to keep the sun off him. Now it's like all thoughts of the race are out the door. Because now we're talking like, dude, we're in the desert. The fucking checkpoints are like six miles apart, seven miles apart. And we got a couple miles to go. And this guy's sitting down. And this guy's fit. I mean, he won three or four of these races in a row. He, you know, I was like, holy shit. Like, and he's like, oh, you can just go. I'm good. I'm like, dude, I'm not leaving. I was like, come on, I'll carry a pack. Let's see if we can get to the checkpoint because they'll have some first aid there and they'll have water. By the way, we're running out of water. So he has his water. I have my water. So now I'm pouring my water on his head. He's drinking my water. And Listen, before he started the struggle, we were helping each other. We were like, you know, he'd pour water on my head occasionally. If he had extra, I'd pour it on his head. We're working together. We're friends. So eventually a support vehicle comes by. And, of course, I'm pissed because I'm like, guys, what the fuck, man? Do you need more support out here? We're in the desert. The checkpoints are way too far apart. We can't carry enough water to get there. Like, we're loaded with water. And we're still running out. And again, this is at like three o'clock in the afternoon. We've been going since eight in the morning, uh, running. And uh, so they take him and they're like, all right, you're good. So now I'm like, I'm the fucking winner. I'm gone. I like he's sitting down like on death's door and I'm legging it because now I've recovered. I'm like feeling good. I'm running like the fastest seven mile split of the race. I still have my 20 pound pack on, but I'm moving. And um, I, at that point, I took like an 80 minute lead over second place and ended up winning the race. It was a six day 155 miles, six day stage race, self supported, meaning you had to carry everything except water and a tent to sleep in. But I had my sleeping bag, sleeping pad, and all the food and emergency items and a few clothing items because no shower, nothing for like seven days. It was crazy. I take two showers a day. I'm the biggest pussy under the sun. Like, I want to sleep at the Four Seasons. I want to eat a good meal. Like, I have no man skills at all. <laughs> like, my kids love the show alone. And, uh, <laughs> interesting side story. I'm working on a couple TV projects 
with the production company that produces alone, Wheelhouse Studios. They also produce Intervention, Pawn Stars, Duck Dynasty, really good dudes. And um, they were like, listen, we got a show called Alone. I'm like, I, I thought we were friends. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'd fucking be dead and publicly humiliated in two weeks if I went on Alone because I'd never quit. But I don't know how to fish. I don't know how to hunt. Motherfuckers snaring rabbits and then skinning them and cooking them. Like, oh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Like, I don't know any of that stuff. I've never, this is the first time I've ever lived in a house at 50 years old. I've always lived in apartments. I mean, in LA, we lived in a house, but it was like in LA. It wasn't like, now I feel like we live in the country, which when I tell people in my neighborhood that we live in the country, they always laugh because to them, this is country. I'm like, yo, I go for a run. I see horses and cows in some of these yards. And they're like, okay, I guess that's fair. I guess. But to them, we're in like the metropolis of Nashville, <laughs> but we're not. <laughs> and so um, anyway, the point is like, I just, I didn't, that stuff didn't, that outdoorsy stuff didn't come natural to me. It was a challenge, but that's why I did that race is because it challenged me and scared the shit out of me. And I was like, I'm always preaching to people like do things that make you uncomfortable, man, except big challenges. That's the only way you can win is your first step is you have to show up. But in a lot of cases, that's like 75, 80% of the battle is just being there. Hey, I'm here. Who wants this? It's like what I told you when, <laughs> with my wife, but I'm like, what do you, what do you want to do? Do you want to do something about this? Like, my wife's always like, what are you going to do when someone tells you, yeah, like, yeah, I do want to do something when you have a conflict with someone. Most people don't want a conflict, including me. But I've never been the type to shout and scream and yell. I'm always just like, uh, excuse me, what are you yelling about? You cut me off. What the fuck are you going to do about it? Nothing? Okay. If you want to do something, do something. But if you're not going to do something, don't just keep running your mouth. Because most people don't even show up. And that's kind of my philosophy on all these races is like, what could I do if I actually showed up to a bunch of these things? So that's been my new philosophy recently, which is why I signed up for that Gobi March race. First time I've ever done an ultra marathon. First time sleeping in a tent. First time running with a backpack. And you won. And I won. <laughs> and I won. It's fucking crazy. I can't, I can't say it without laughing. So we got Gobi, which is very, very recent. You know, you, we kind of left the story at leaning yeah, sorry, more I'm no 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 but it's, it's beautiful I'm, a, I'm an interviewer's nightmare no you're not actually i love it because i'm I'm a rabbit hole you know fan so that we can always circle back which is what we're doing no problem at all um so you're initially just running you know just simply yeah, for exercise so walk me through yeah. how that turned into competitions we talked about gobi and and to tell yeah. me some of the other incredible events that you've been part of it's like a, this is like a good book where they tell you the ending at the beginning and then walk you through how they ended up getting there. Um, so when I was getting sober, I was cycling, swimming, running and doing more triathlon stuff. So I became like obsessed with triathlons. And of course, like anything, I'm like, what's the top one? Oh, the Hawaii Ironman. It's on TV. Holy shit. It's on NBC. I'm doing that. Then you start to look into what's into what goes into it and people doing like 10, 12 races trying to qualify because you have to qualify to go there. And uh, it took me like, I want to say three tries to get there. First couple of times, you know, there's a lot to learn in an Ironman. I had no experience cycling. I didn't know how to swim. I mean, I know how to swim like if I fell out of a boat, but I was never swimming laps. But very quickly, I just went to the pool. I told this story before, but long story short, I just jumped in the pool and started swimming. And then I'd see people at the New York Athletic Club. There was a lot of Olympic swimmers there. 
and uh, former Olympians. And I would just grab people and be like, hey, buddy, do me a favor. Will you watch me swim down the pool and back and tell me what am I doing wrong? And most people, when they see me there every day, they'd start helping me all the time. They'd be like, hey, when you get to the flip turn, do this, this, this. Then I'd do it. How was that? I was like a little kid in a man's body. I was like, how was that? And they were like, dude, that was awesome. You know, and then I was like, you know, it was like their charity case in the pool. But then I'd get to an Ironman and I like at Ironman Wisconsin, I was like fifth or sixth overall out of everyone. One my age group. I went to Hawaii three times. So when we started having children in 2010, I was like, you know, so I was doing triathlon maybe three or four years. And then in 2010, we had talked to my daughter and I was like, you know what? It's just, it's just not feasible to think. I mean, that training was crazy. I was training at least 20 hours a week, you know, once or twice a week. At a minimum, once I'd be training for like six to eight hours a day. So I'd ride my bike for like four or five hours. Because think about it, you have to ride 112 miles and then run 26 in the race. So if you can't ride 100 miles on Saturday and run 10 off the bike, how the hell are you going to ride 112 fast and then run a marathon? In the middle of the day in Hawaii, where it's going to be 85 and 85% humidity, fucking guaranteed, no questions asked. That's what it's going to be. Never varies. And it's going to be windy on the bike. Like dangerous windy, like crosswinds knock you off your bike. And it did hurt a lot of people. Um, So I did that. First time I went there, I quit. I just got on the run. It started to suck. And I was so happy just to be there that I justified quitting. I stepped off the course. And that was like a huge turning point in my life. Because and my partner, Teddy Atlas, who does the, the fight podcast with me, the fight with Teddy Atlas, he always says that it takes a lot. It's a lot more difficult to quit than to keep going in anything. Because when you quit, you have to live with that feeling for the rest of your life. And for someone like me, like, I can't think of something worse than like giving up, quitting, being a failure, like at things that are in your control. You can't control talent. You can control effort. And um, yeah, in 2012, I went there, got on the run, quit, walked back to the starting line like a failure, crying, walking with my wife like a, like a, just a sad, pathetic loser. Just like, what am I doing? Even when I was doing it, I knew I was fucking up. And uh, apologies for the cursing, by the way. I don't know if you have cursing on your show. I do. You yeah, absolutely a lot fine. Of, a lot of beeping out. <laughs> so um, I went to dinner that night with my wife and I was like super emotional because I was like, I can't believe it. Like I'm ashamed of myself. And um, I had those drug feelings again. And she was like, uh, and I, and she had sacrificed a lot for me to do this because we had two little kids. And she's like, if it's that important to you, go back and do it next year. From the minute she said that, like hours after the race, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm doing that. I went to Wisconsin the next year, came in like fifth or sixth overall, did like 930. Then I went to Hawaii that year and did 939 or something, 939 or 936, something like that. Sounds crazy because when you're in that world, you would remember, you would remember the time down to the second. But now it's been so long, 10 years that I'm like, yeah, it was in this context. I know I've done these times. 936 or 939 was in Wisconsin and Kona, or conversely, either or. But yeah, I was super happy with that. And um, then I started running and I ran, I wanted to break three hours in the marathon. I ran like 358 in Boston, maybe 258 in Boston. And then I was like, huh, I wonder just kind of casually, it wasn't like a grand plan or a scheme. I was like, I wonder how fast I can run a marathon if I just train running. And we moved to LA and then in 2018, I ran a 
three two forty in LA, which was an astronaut. Sorry, I ran a two fifty eight in Boston, then I ran a two forty five in New York. Which those courses are really hard, so that's really a faster time. I think that this, they're probably worth a few minutes at least on a flat course versus Boston and New York. So then I um I did the LA marathon in two forty in like I want to say like March of 18 or 19 and then that december i went to tucson which is a really fast course and i ran 233 which was like an astronomical in the course of let's say two years i had taken like close to 30 minutes off my marathon time but it was all self-coached i was just running a ton the whole thing came down to consistency i was just consistently running more than other people and i had no rhyme or reason i never went to a track when i felt good i'd run fast if i felt bad i'd run slow and 90% of the running was on uh, mountain trails uh, in the Santa Monica mountains. We lived in the highlands in the Pacific Palisades. So like two and a half miles from the beach as the crow flies, but 2000 feet of up into the mountains. So we were like up there and I'd have access to the trails. I'd run in there. It's just, it was wild. We were so close to LA, but I'd be running and I'd see coyotes. Um, I saw a mountain lion one day, like face to face with a full grown adult mountain lion um snakes uh bobcats like it was wild like people wouldn't believe we were that close to la and all this wildlife existed but that was like that was the mecca of training for me that was i like geographically the best place on earth my wife's always like if money didn't matter where would you live i said exactly where i lived malibu or pacific palisades it's just so cost prohibitive for four kids like it's fucking crazy so Anyway, yeah, that's how I got into the marathon running and then just set some goals of like winning. When I turned 50, I was like, I want to win the 50 and over age group at all the major marathons. So London, New York, Boston, Berlin, Chicago, Tokyo. And I won Boston, New York, and Tokyo. And I got second in London and Chicago by less than a minute in both. And then I got blown out in Berlin, but I ran terribly. I ran 235 and the winner ran 230, but in tokyo chicago and london i ran 229 i ran 230 in boston 233 in new york and 235 in berlin but in new york i ran when i ran 233 and 21 i won the 40 and over masters division which previous winners included like olympic superstars meb kofleski who won previously won boston and new york marathons my friend Abdi Abdi Rockman, who's a five-time U.S. Olympic runner, he won the Masters in New York. And luckily, the, these guys are my friends. And, you know, Abdi sent me a text like, hey, welcome to the club, Masters champions. And I was just like, man, I can't believe this is my life. A few years ago, I'd hustled down to the start line to watch these superstars just warm up. Now at every single major marathon, I'm starting with the pros. I'm in the front corral standing on the start line next to like legends. In Berlin, there's a picture on the start line of Elliot Kipchoge, the fastest marathon runner in the world in history. I'm two people behind him on the start line in the photo. Like we're ready to go. Like I'm on the field. I'm like on the field at a Super Bowl of running. And, uh, you know, I think those kind of things in the last year or two have really like hit home, made me realize, holy shit, like I've done some pretty cool shit just through sheer determination. Because I'm not like, oh, I'm not like a high performing athlete. I played division three sports at university. I wasn't like a threat to be like, you know, play football at Miami or Notre Dame. 
or hockey for that matter. So to think that at 50, I'm lining up with the best runners in the world is a dream come true. Now, you can hear the passion in your voice when you're telling these stories. You talked about imposter syndrome earlier in your life around the finance times. As you are succeeding in these sports, you know, are, is it actually paying back from the mental health side as well? Are you getting the catharsis from this as well as the simple achievement? Yeah, yeah, probably both. Like, I mean, at like Berlin and then Chicago, probably none, none more so than in Berlin, just walking over to the start line and being treated like a professional versus like, you know, especially at a major marathon. I mean, they treat the masses like cattle. You're like told to wait over here three hours. You're out in a field. It's raining. It's, it's shit. It's the horrible experience. Like running a major marathon is cool for the experience. But if you want to like throw down, if you can't get your ass into the first corral, like what's the sense? Like you're going to start behind 4,000 people, 3,000, even 2,000. That's a lot of people. At the Tokyo Marathon, when it started, I was about 10 people deep off the starting line. Someone at the front, like maybe second or third row of people, stumbled and fell. And dude, thousands of people stampeded them. Like, I mean, I literally hurtled to get over a person, but all you can hear is knees and, and elbows smashing the ground and people getting toppled like they're caught in a wave, like a surfer. And I'm just like, man, if you were like in the back here, there's so many things that can go wrong if you're trying to be competitive, which is why at the start line, sometimes I can be a bit of a pushy dickhead because I'm just like, listen, I got too much time and energy invested in money, invested in getting over here to Tokyo. You know, I'm going over there. I'm, I'm like, I've done all the training and all the bullshit that goes along with it. I'm also splurging for first class ticket. I've been lucky. I've worked hard. I'm like, I don't make any apologies about it. It's the way I... The same way I tell a professional athlete, like if it matters to you, you better like give yourself a chance and, and racing on the other side of the world. Typically, you want to get there one day per hour of time change. Obviously, in Tokyo with like a 14 hour time change, I don't have 14 days to like hang out in Tokyo like by myself. I got four fucking kids and a wife. But I did get over there a week early, traveled over there. So my point was, if I've spent all this time, energy, and money to get here, like to leave something to chance by being like, yeah, okay, I'll start in the third crowd. No, fuck that. I'm like pushing to the front. I'm like, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> and I'm for this exact moment when someone topples that I don't have to like fight through 3,000 people. But, you know, to, like I said, walking over there and just realizing like, yo, I'm walking in with the pros. They see your number. They see you coming with the special bag and go right this way you know into this like beautiful tent with your own bathrooms and food and it's just like holy shit i did this when i walked into that tent all the athletes were sitting by based on nationalities you know like chinese team kenyans the americans and it was just awesome i walked in and some of the american guys were like yo ken and i was like oh my god they know me I'm a fucking old nerd. These like professional runners know me. They're like almost accepting me. It's like, you know, hey, you're with the Americans, but there were no seats anywhere. So the only seats are next to the Kenyans with Kipchoge. So I just walked over to Kipchoge and I was like, yo, anyone sitting here? And he's like, no, I think other people might have been like intimidated to sit next to like the world champion. I was like, fuck this. No seat. No one's sitting next to Kipchoge. I'm, I'm going to go sit there. So yeah, that was just like the most surreal moment of my like running career, if you will. And the best win that I'm most proud of is probably winning the Masters division at New York City. Like to win that, I mean, I think I won like $4,000. It was like, I got a paycheck. I have it framed over here, like crazy. 
<laughs> I got fucking made money for running. Who would have ever thought of something so crazy? I mean, even even the apparel, like uh, I have a apparel sponsor, Say Sky. They send me the clothes that I run and race in. And 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 by the way, I've turned down like six other companies because Say Sky started giving me clothes when I couldn't get arrested. I hadn't won anything, and the guy just heard my story through a, through a Danish friend. It's a it's a Danish based company in Copenhagen, and uh, he started sending me like shorts and tank tops. And when I started to get attention and apparel companies wanted to pay me to wear their stuff in races, I said, I'm happy to wear your clothes anywhere, but I cannot wear it when I'm running. I, I have a personal commitment to these guys. They've been, they've been giving me stuff when no one knew who the fuck I was. I'm like, I, I don't, I have what a lot of wealthy people don't have. And that's enough. Uh, we could always use more money, but if nothing else, I have enough. I'm, I'm good right now. So I, I value my relationships and friendships in the space. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I have integrity and I have my word means everything to me. What do you think it is that makes the Kenyans so good at distance events like that? Uh, I think it's probably a combination of a bunch of things, right? They're at their, most of them are born at altitude and E10. Um, I think Nairobi is probably at like a healthy, um, uh, altitude. I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it also has to do with their, uh, physiological makeup, right? They tend to be long and lean and low muscle mass. And there's like a direct correlation between having, like, if you look at all the world record holders in the marathon, they're almost the exact same dimensions. They tend to be around five, six to five, eight, probably like 110 pounds. They're super, super lean and efficient. Their form tends to be flawless. Like they just, I think that they just have all the right anatomy and physiology for running, but that's just me theorizing based on no scientific knowledge whatsoever. So before I get attacked by all the um, online fucking experts, please know this is just my own personal opinion. You cannot own my opinion. Only I can control that. That's my opinion. <laughs> and I also think that they realize like, you know, you running costs nothing to be involved. If you win and, and, and can win at the high level, you can, you know, set your whole family up for success and like financially take care of everyone. And, you know, they spend a lot of time walking and running between places like schools and their homes. And, uh, you know, there's not a ton of infrastructure, obviously, in Kenya. And, you know, I think that the, 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 it just lends itself to creating these athletes that are just, tend to be very efficient runners. They have, you know, all the things that you need and there's no cost for entry. Um, but, you know, that's just my my theory, philosophy. Well, one more thing on the training. You know, you're talking about hours and hours on the bike, in the pool, running, depending on if you're you know, training for a triathlon or a straight run. But as we age, you know, things do start to break down. How are you able to mitigate injuries and overtraining? That's a good question. I think I've just been lucky. Like I always have something nagging me, but I've always been super proactive. So like, for instance, I know that if I have Achilles or calf tightness, I know exactly what I need to do. I do like calf drops where I start and raised up on one calf and lower myself on a 12 count. It sucks. It's boring. It takes forever. But if I do those plantar fasciitis fixed, tendon, Achilles tendonitis fixed, calf cramps, it's solved everything. But 
I've never stopped running through any of the injuries. Now I've had surgeries and stuff that have required a few days off, but even when I had a reconstructive shoulder surgery, labrum, rotator cuff, they fixed it. He said, don't run for four weeks. I had it in a sling after four days. I just put a belt around my neck, held onto the belt with my bad hand, my bad arm and just started running. And I ran, I think the on the fourth day I ran four miles on the fifth day. I was back to 10 a day, every day. To the point where even the doctor couldn't believe it. He's like, I don't believe that you're running. I'm like, oh, I promise you I am. And I showed him and he was like fucking enraged. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I literally had to walk it back. He he did the sur- same exact surgery on my friend, Chris Spencer, who I bought my house from, who played for the Titans offensive lineman. He was like, oh, yeah, because I was like, Chris, do you think I can run like a week later? He's like, no way, man. I slept in a fucking reclining chair for like four weeks. It was torture. And it it, it hurt more than words can describe it was fucking torture but i couldn't take this the i couldn't take the um you know what's the word not sedentary sedentary i i just couldn't take the lack of uh exercise or movement so i would like even the second day i was out walking with my wife i said here make a video and i was like just jogging clowning around i was like second day after surgery i'm already out running but i literally looked like i was gonna drop dead i had slippers on (laughs) but um yeah, I, I think that consistency and a proactive approach is what's enabled me to stay fit. Like I, I do hot and cold therapy. I do, I don't do a ton of stretching, but I do a ton of strength work. I'm always doing something to try to get better and something to try and improve like overall strength or like, you know, functional strength. So I wish I had an easy answer for you. I just say that it's like an overall thing of like diet, sleep, constantly trying to improve at everything, not just running. Running is just a small part of what I do. So with the success on you know, with the endurance sports, you talked about the absolute nightmare that it is to go through withdrawal, especially over and over again. Sure. You've you know, you've had this kind of turbulent life up to that point, and then you you know find incredible strength to to actually maintain sobriety. How much did the strength that you got from the negative side of your life actually contribute to the mental toughness needed to succeed in the sports you chose? Yeah, I would say it's everything. This is nothing compared to what I've been through. This is nothing compared to mental torture and suffering. Running out of drugs and trying to hustle around on a Sunday afternoon, trying to find drugs like a piece of shit, missing out on events like, uh, you know, making up excuses for people why you can't meet them for dinner because i'm like running around trying to like get high because i'm like in withdrawals and i can't go to even if i didn't want to get high i can't go meet someone i'm sweating i can't get within you know 10 feet of a bathroom i'm like you know it's a fucking disaster it's a nightmare it's shameful so now when i think of what i'm like all right you know marathon training there's like two or three hard days a week that's it the rest of it's just consistency you know 90 percent of the work or 80 percent is just the jogging 10 miles but on the days when it's time to work those days can be uncomfortable getting the ball rolling but once the ball's rolling i.e once my body's moving if i'm having a good day it's like magic if i'm having a hard day i just remind myself like this ain't hard this physical suffering isn't hard. Voluntary physical suffering isn't hard. I, when I was in the Gobi Desert and I was suffering, and, and you know, it's fucking 100 degrees, I'm sunburned, I've got chafing all over from the backpack. I kept reminding myself, like, yo, there's guys out in the military, special forces that are doing this. And if they, do, and if they don't do it right, they're going to get killed. 
someone is trying to actively kill them, especially special forces guys that are out on missions. Like, I don't think that they take a lot of missions where they don't think the odds are heavily in their favor, but that the best laid plans can still go wrong. Look at the raid when they killed Obama and the fucking helicopter crashed. Like, that's crazy. You've trained for like a month for this, and as soon as you get there, the helicopter crashes. But just shows you like how mentally tough these guys are. They're like, all right, the tele- the airplane, the helicopter crash. Fuck it. What do- now? What do we have to do now? Let's just run. No, no, no. Let's kill this motherfucker. Then we'll get out of here. Like it's crazy to think of the mental toughness. So when I think about the behaviors and actions of guys like that, when I was specifically when I was in the Gobi Desert, I was like, dude, come on, grow the fuck up. This ain't tough in the grand scheme of tough. This is just uncomfortable. And we're all uncomfortable. And there's an end in sight. And you're not going to die. You know what I mean? And I was just like, come on, let's go. And and when you've done that so many times in races and in different um, endeavors, you just start, it becomes the norm. You know how this ends. So you can tell yourself, well, I can pretend I twisted my ankle. I can... Uh, Sit down and pretend I'm sick. I, there's a way to get out all the time. Lucky for me, I know what it feels like to take the easy way. And it sucks. And I'd rather be dead trying to win than a coward who quits when he doesn't really have to. And I can only say that because I've done it and I know the feeling and I don't ever want to feel it again. So it's pretty apparent that we have a health crisis as well as a mental health crisis at the moment and i would argue that those two are interrelated as well you you know found yourself somewhere where you were very very deep in a hole you managed to to turn that into a positive have have growth from it and become the you know phenomenal business person and you know endurance athlete that you are now if you had the ear holes of everyone in the country and you could talk to them about finding discipline or whatever it is to improve their own health because i've always been very very uh, diligent in pointing out that a lot of people grow up in an environment that discourages health i would argue you know there's there's fast food on every street you get in your car to go everywhere you know you may not have been taught what fruit and vegetables even are in your household or your school so there's that side but obviously there's the ownership side the david goggins you know um, metaphors so if you could address the population, you know, what would you tell the average person who maybe is teetering on that edge between doing something and not? I would say that anything, any habits, good or bad, are contagious. And if you think about the most basic physical, uh, the basic um, uh, equation or, or theory of physics that a body in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted upon by an external force, but a body at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted upon. Those things, if you think about it in those terms, it's true. If you start moving and you get a week of momentum, if you can commit one week, I guarantee you that if you're out of shape and you clean up your diet and you exercise vigorously for one week, you will start to see some like small improvements or cracks in the facade of unhealthiness and nothing is more contagious than seeing success and by the same token if you just lounge around for a week and do nothing like you're going to have to at some point pay the price if i take a week off and don't do any training i know that next week back ain't going to be easy um and uh, like i said it becomes contagious and when you start to see some incremental improvements i think for a lot of people they'll get it 
but a lot of people don't want to make that first step. The first step's always the hardest. But like I said earlier, 75, 80% of life is just showing up. Just show up for a little while. I thought you were going to ask me what would I say to address the differences in our country right now with all the um, seemingly conf- seemingly uh, conflicted viewpoints. And to that, I would say, take a fucking deep breath, man, and realize we're all in this together. And take a minute to put yourself in someone else's shoes whether it's this transgender movement or whether it's thinking like a police officer, we're so quick to vilify the other side of people, the other side of the argument. And it's very clear that we're divided down the middle. There's like, I don't know if woke is the right word, but there's the super liberal, like social justice warriors that are like the fucking climate's going down. Uh, Equal rights for transgender, blah, blah, blah. Anyone who doesn't think anyone deserves equal rights is fucking crazy for starters, right? We're all, everyone deserves respect and that feel important and have integrity but just because your feelings might get hurt doesn't mean that your feelings are validated like yeah my feelings get hurt about a lot of shit i'm not gonna go i i I can't make you behave in a way that doesn't hurt my feelings like you could do whatever the fuck you want this is a free country it's up to me to determine how i react to your feelings so with this whole like with a lot of these social justice issues, like the transgender stuff, I have incredible sympathy for anyone going through that. I, I would never want to know someone was feeling ostracized, but I also would never stand for seeing someone be discriminate or be nasty to someone based on their orientation. Like that's like what I say with, with my children and the way they behave in public. I'm like, we're on the same team here, guys. You see someone picking on someone else, and if you don't help them, you're just as guilty as the guy doing the picking. Being Doing the right thing doesn't mean that it's always easy. Sometimes you have to do the right thing even when it's dangerous or scary. But we don't, we can't put up with people bullying others. And that's the bottom line is like, if we all just have an ounce of decency and treat each other with respect and speak out when you see a lack of respect shown, that should solve most of this shit. But you can't impose your will on someone else to believe something that you that they don't or that they won't it's the same thing with racism any kind of discrimination forcing these laws and fucking beating people over the head with a rainbow flag it the people that are anti-transgender anti-gay like nothing these people are off the reservation like if you don't like someone based on their sexual orientation like you'd really need to ask yourself what's wrong with you why would you care about someone else's sexual practices that's number one. Now, listen, I'm sure the people that are like anti-gay will be like, well, what about kids and pedophiles? Yeah, no shit. Of course, that's completely out of bounds. But just because someone has a certain sexual preference doesn't mean that they're a predator. Anyway, I digress. I'm probably going to get myself into too much into trouble for even opening my mouth. But the point is, if we just start with showing each other a level of respect and a level of understanding Dude, I have friends that I couldn't disagree with more on political stances, but I still love them. And I'm like, you really believe that, dude? I love you. But I can't believe that you believe that. But I don't want to talk about it anymore because I can tell the passion with which you're expressing this that we're not going to agree. And I don't fucking care. As long as we treat each other with decency, it's all good. That's what voting is for. Everyone get their voice heard. But I just feel like right now that if, if if you're not with us, you're against us. You can't just disagree. We have to paint you as the villain. And the fucking crazy thing is these like agents of 
messaging this mainstream media like you're either i don't care what your side of the argument or what your political persuasion is if you watch fox and you watch cnn like you're just either you're just getting reinforced your own beliefs reinforced and the people there have one goal to make money to get you to tune in the more passionate you feel about conservative movement and you're on fox and you're with fucking sean hannity and you're like yeah sean fuck biden You're just getting reinforced. If you go to CNN and you think that Joe Biden is a healthy individual and is capable of running our country, I I fucking dare you to hire that guy to be the CEO of your company. I dare you. You tell me that you want him to make decisions, financial decisions for your company. And and if you tell me that, that that's your guy, cool, that's your guy. And you listen to CNN and they'll have you convinced he's the man, that this is the best guy we have in this country right now. And if you watch Fox, they'll be like, only Trump can save us. And I'm like, this is fucking crazy. I'm listening to two different crazy people. So hopefully that doesn't reveal too much about what I believe, (laughs) because what I believe doesn't matter. But I do think that we're like so far apart on issues. I don't see any candidate that can like just come across and like, look, cut the bullshit. You don't have to like me to respect me. I'm going to represent the views of all the people. And uh, I was listening to an interview the other day. I forget what it was, like Sean Sean Ryan podcast with um, Eli something, who's a, 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 a some politician from Arizona, former Navy SEAL. And he was voting on an issue on the debt ceiling. And he said, yeah, I just basically, first I did a small poll of people in my um, district of what they want, how they wanted me to vote on raising the debt ceiling. Yes or no. I told them I'm a, I'm a no. I don't think we should vote on any debt ceiling increase. We shouldn't be allowed to borrow more money to spend on shit we don't have. Like, imagine if I told you I was a million dollars in debt and I was like, yeah, but I'm going to borrow another million and give it to my neighbor because he's building a fence that I like. You'd be like, dude, are you fucking crazy? You can't spend money you don't have. Uh, again, I digress. Um, but this guy was saying like he took a poll and it, shockingly, the people wanted him to vote for the debt ceiling because they were like, well, what we might get forced on us later could be even worse. Fair. So he's like, I still didn't believe it. I did a bigger poll. Like say I did like 12 people the first time and then I'm getting the numbers wrong with then like 30 people the next time. And overwhelmingly, it was like 80% of the people voted for yes. And he was like, so that's how I voted. That to me is a politician, man. You're not hurrying favors with other politicians you're representing the will of your people but like i said i digress maybe i'm an idealist i just don't see any of this ever again i feel like we're so far from that happening you know the fact that politicians can leave political office making two three hundred thousand and buy like an 11 million dollar house on martha's vineyard it just defies logic and rationale like how are they making so much money how does some of these politicians have hundreds of millions of dollars and they and again, I, I'm sure I'll be attacked by all the um, critics out there like, oh, their spouses are rich and they did this and they did that. They're also fucking insider trading with zero ramifications. It's just fucking bums me out what's going on with politics in this country. Well, first, you're echoing a lot of things that I've said. I mean, CNN, Fox, same exact pile of shit, you know, screen divided into four, with four dickheads argue with each other, and they're calling it news, when ultimately, they're trying to sell the advertising space between each clickbait story, and it's not about disseminating middle-of-the-road common-sense news. And if you listen to Robert Kennedy, I mean, that guy, man, every time he talks, they're like, he's a kook, he's an alien, he's an anti-vaxxer. I'm like, okay. So what should we do? Not let him have a voice? So if, if 
if, if someone was standing up screaming conspiracy theories and they made no sense, an, an intelligent person would simply say, I'm now going to poke holes in everything that he said. And I'm happy to debate him in any platform, in any venue that he wants. No one ever does that. They never do. They just say, he, he said this and they stop pulling apart. Uh, by the way, I'm not making a statement for or against anyone. I just think it's funny that when he says this, they attack, like he's, he's so attacked, which just tells you like, yeah, we're afraid of him. Let's attack, attack, attack. Because if you weren't afraid, you'd be like, oh, this guy is a bumbling fucking idiot. Let him on. Let him on the debate stage. He's a clown. We're going to tear him to shreds. But no, they don't want this guy on it. He might tell us that we're anti. He might tell us anti-vax shit. Well, if it's anti-vax, just debunk what he's saying. But the point that was wanted to get to is that he said, um, I think the stat was like 60% of all ad revenue from the major news networks, both sides, is provided by pharmaceutical which only two countries, according to RFK, there's only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise, New Zealand and the U.S. Like for starters, why don't we just ban that? They, they fund all these political action committees and all these candidates are owned by these, by these corporations, not just pharma. But I mean, when you have Amazon owns the Washington Post, like these guys control so much of the narrative. But I think more and more those those voices have been um, minimized and those opinions have become minimized because you can get the, you can hear from the horse's mouth on social media. Like you don't have to listen to what they say about RFK. You can just hear what he says himself and, and, and compare it to what they're writing because inevitably, and the same thing goes for Trump, whether you like him or not, you can, they can say whatever they want, but he can then get on and give his rebuttal in real time. Hey, they said this, this, this. Here's why this is a lie. And here's the guy who wrote it. And here's the other things he's written about me. And here's his background. And here's the people he's affiliated with. And all of a sudden, you're like, holy shit. Social media has leveled the playing field, not just for politics, but also for um, the entertainment industry. You used to have to go to Hollywood and do what you had to do and run the potential <laughs> of hitting a fucking casting couch. Now you can be uh, Jake Paul, Logan Paul, set up a YouTube show. And I don't care if you like or dislike people on YouTube. These people have gone out and said like, hey, I'm more entertaining than you guys in Hollywood and I'm going to prove it to you. And they've created this monster platform. Same thing for a guy like Joe Rogan. More listeners than all of the mainstream media news channels combined. Which is why now, oh, Joe's got an audience. We have to tear him down. Even though he has said, I'm a fucking liberal Democratic voter primarily. And it's those guys that are still attacking him. I just don't get it. It's like anyone who's a threat, Joe Rogan, RFK, Elon Musk, when he bought Twitter, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you got Chuck Schumer saying he's going to investigate Twitter and their access to like foreign governments and Tesla. And it's, it's just madness. It's so fucking transparent. Uh, I don't know. You're going to get me canceled here by letting <laughs> me just run my mouth. Fucking big mouth. Disregard everything I say. These aren't my own opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, here's my perspective, okay? Being an immigrant, having lived on the East Coast and the West Coast, just a different perspective on the world than, than a lot of people get. But mine is this. Coming from another country, not that the political system in the UK is phenomenal either. I mean, Boris Johnson was our last president. Looked like Wurzel Gummidge. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that a guy like that had convinced enough people to make him the prime minister? I mean... It just seems crazy. Yeah, it's it's bullshit. But so what I hear every four years, the same exact thing when we're down to two people to choose from to run this country is, oh, it's the lesser of two evils. 
So clearly to me, our system is broken. A leader, for example, when there's a crisis, let's say, for example, a virus that sweeps over the the, uh, planet, would unify a country, would bring people together, like you saw in 9-11, like you saw in the Grenfell fire in London, communities coming together. The last two you know, administrations, the last two presidents, so both sides of the aisle have done nothing but divide. So this is my thing. It's not about the, you know, people are willing to die over these freaking two, two people. It's like, well, what about the system that creates this in the first place? Every one of us, if I told everyone, write down on the piece of paper, the best leader you know, how many of those people would ever have a chance to vie for president of the United States? Because like you said, firstly, they've got to be part of the million or billionaires club just to even play the game. And then secondly, they've got to have no ethics. So this whole leader that you're holding, you know, is actually is, is never going to be there. But why not? So that's my thing is that the system is broken and we keep getting these people that divide. And then it's like World War One where they're lobbing shots over a field over two dickheads that no one ever fucking liked in the first place. So if you could be king for a day, what would you do, whether it's changing the system? What, what, what can we do to get out of this fucking hole that we're in every four years and actually move the needle on, on good leadership in this country? Yeah, well, first of all, as you were talking, apologies if it looks like I wasn't paying attention. I was pulling up a, a picture behind me that you can see on the screens now. You see who that is? Tony Blair. <laughs> I was uh, when I was working in LA in finance. A friend of mine uh, connected me with a guy called David Sinclair, who's a long ge- a geneticist uh, professor at Harvard Medical School. He wrote a book called Lifespan. He's an anti-aging longevity guy, expert scientist. Been in, uh, been on Rogan a few times. He's been everywhere. Um, we were in uh, New York raising money for his uh, uh, pharma startup. Uh, in like 18 and he was like, Hey, I've got a dinner tonight with some investors, blah, blah, blah. And ended up being at, um, well, Rupert Murdoch's ex-wife, Wendy Murdoch was hosting David and Tony Blair uh, for dinner. So I went there with David and, uh, some like beautiful New York city triplex apartment. And we get in there. There's only like five or six people. It was me, Wendy, some staff and um uh bennett miller who directed fox catcher and moneyball big time movie director and tony blair but i didn't recognize him i know it sounds crazy it was just like hey i'm in there I'm like thing hey there's a british guy hey what's up man he's like oh ken what do you do telling him oh. and i'm like oh what? no one introduced anyone i was like what's your name and he's like oh i'm tony and I'm like, oh, what do you do, Tony? Because again, it's like a eclectic meeting, right? There's a movie director. I'm with a scientist. It's not like finance people, which is what I've been doing for 20 years. He's like, oh, I work in politics. And I, and I know it sounds crazy when I tell this story because, but I mean, if you walked into a dinner and fucking Obama was there and you were like, man, that guy looks familiar, but what? like <laughs> it, it just was so out of context. It, it, and uh he's like oh my last name is blair and i was like oh for christ's sakes i go i'm so embarrassed dude i lived in london for a lot of the time you were prime minister i can't believe i didn't recognize you and anyway it was just funny so when you were talking about politics it reminded me so i wanted to show you that picture it's uh me and tony blair having dinner at uh rupert murdoch's penthouse or, or wendy murdoch's penthouse pretty fucking crazy story i feel like at times like forrest gump like wait a minute where were you I know it's crazy. I was at the Monte Carlo Grand Prix on a yacht with Puffy. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> I was just there. But um, that's the one thing that I've stressed in my life is like I've been lucky and had some financial success, but I've always put much more emphasis on experiences than possessions. And I've had some incredible experiences and done some really like 
life-changing things. So we got distracted by the Tony Blair picture. If you were a king for a day, how would we fix our system? Yeah. Man, that's a good question. I, I just, I think that when someone says that they want to be a politician, we should eliminate them from consideration immediately. It should be like some kind of recruitment process where we whittle it down. But I think the whole thing has to be reformed. I think we're in a complete and total uniparty system that if you get elected to Congress, Senate, whatever, House of Representatives, and you're in, um, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, if you don't play ball with the people that are there, you're if you're not in the club, you are basically fucked. You're not going to be on any of the subcommittees. You're not going to be on any of the committees, period. And it's just all bullshit. It's like, you know, it's, the whole, it's like a whole bothering system. Hey, if you give me a vote on this, I'll, uh, you know, we'll fucking let you into the club. And I don't know. I, I think that we need like serious, serious disruption. Or a leader has to emerge that's so unifying that it's like transformational because I do feel like, and again, this could be the media and all the messaging and all the noise that we hear, but I do feel like, number one, we're the best country and this is the best country in the world. And that's not like crazy nationalists, like fucking a cuckoo comment. Like I've, I've lived in other places. I've traveled the world. I just came back from Mongolia. I lived in London, lived in Hong Kong. Like I, I, I've been around. Uh, not as much as some people, but I've been around enough to know it's pretty damn good here. But I also feel like there are people that are clearly like not happy with the system. And it feels at times like we're pushing towards a more socialist, globalist type of uh, environment. And, you know, it sounds cliche, but if you look at any of the socialist societies throughout history, they tend to end badly. And um, the fact that we are pushing those kind of like themes and ideologies is just nerve wracking for me, but I also don't want to seem like the type of lunatic that's caught up in um, noise of politics and the entertainment of it for the media's from the media's perspective. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of work to be done, but I do feel like if if shit doesn't get changed quickly, there's so many like threats not necessarily physical threats but there are other people it's like if you were training for a race and there's other people training and you see that the training for our team is shitty versus the other team seems to be training like military precision you know and again it's easy for that perception to be skewed but i just feel like we need some great unifier otherwise we're starting to see the like at times i feel like without sounding like a conspiracy theorist that's starting to feel a bit like the fall of rome <laughs> like the roman empire starting to see cracks in the facade here like and the crazy thing is whenever you have a, a situation like 9-11 or an even, an even better example would be Pearl Harbor. When someone comes and attacks us, you see the country come together like never before. It's like your kids, like they're bickering with each other. They're being a pain in the ass. The minute someone from outside this family has a problem with one of my kids, this is where my wife and I are like the perfect balance to each other. I'm like, I guys, get over there and fucking deal with this. There's four of you deal with this right now and my wife's like are you crazy those people are our neighbors just go over and talk to the dad and fix this and i'm like all right <laughs> <laughs> well you've touched on joe rogan before um i really feel like the podcast platform has been in like social media the podcast platform has been an amazing way for, for information to be sem disseminated for stories to be told without filters without people saying you can't say this you can't do that 
Tell me about um, your podcast with Teddy Atlas. I had a, a guest on, Pat Russo, who founded the New York Cops and Kids, and I know Teddy is a big part of that as well. How did you guys yeah. get together, and what made you want to do a podcast together? I mean, first of all, what made me want to do it? I mean, who the fuck wouldn't want to? Like, I love boxing. Someone, someone said, hey, you want to do a podcast with like the, one of the greatest trainers in the history of the sport? I was like, uh, yeah. Why does he want to do it with me? <laughs> but basically my friend my, my one of my best friends rob moore who's been like a business partner and friend and training partner of, of mine for the last call it 10 years um rob and i moved to la at the same time we both left our jobs and started freelancing at the same time so we were both kind of living this like stressful life of like rolling the dice and giving up the safety and security of a job or some could say slavery of a job and um he was a PR guy and I had said to him in passing, like, oh, you should do some PR for uh, some fighters. And instead of charging for effort versus results, charge for results. Say like, hey, give me instead of five grand retainer, charge a thousand a month. And if you get the uh, media placements, take a huge bonus. Someone told me they could get a feature article written about me in the New York Times. How much is that worth? Would you pay 25,000 for that? That's huge media. If you could, if I could get on Joe Rogan, would you pay a hundred grand? I would. Uh, think about the audience that you can get in front of, especially if you have something to sell. I don't necessarily have something to sell, but you get my point. So he did that, and he was doing some work for a couple of different fighters, and somehow along the way, he got connected with Teddy. Teddy was like having some disagreements with ESPN. They were basically forcing him off the air because he wouldn't, you know, play ball with the promoters and not call out the corruption as he saw it. And they were using him less. And my buddy Rob connected with him. And Rob was a huge proponent of podcasts. He's actually the producer and business partner of Andrew Huberman now. And um, produces the Andrew Huberman podcast and helped create it. And um, so he said to Teddy, oh, you should have a podcast. I got a friend who will do it for you. He'll represent the fans. You guys will have some banter to talk about. And, you know, it took like, a you know, six to 12 months to find a groove on the rhythm. Um you know, Teddy is an old school guy. You don't just show up and he's like, oh, what's up, man? We're best friends. It's like a huge level of skepticism, understandably, because boxing is like the dirtiest, most corrupt sport I've ever been around by fucking miles. Nothing else is even close. There's no governing body. There's no like oversight committee. So it's like the Wild West. But anyway, I digress. So as a result, you know, Teddy feels probably rightfully so that he's been burned a few times in his life and um, some of them publicly, you know, he was Mike Tyson's first trainer and then that came to an end. And that was, you know, when, when you've dealt with that kind of like shadiness your whole career, it's normal to be like defensive when meeting new people, especially in regards to boxing. So it took a while, but now, I mean, we're like a family. If I told Teddy someone was coming here, someone was threatening him to kill me, I am not kidding you. He'd be like, Ken, I'll be right down and I'll bring a gun if we need one. Like he's the guy. I'm serious. If I told him we were having a gunfight with someone and I would think I'm going to die, he'd be like, I'll be right over. No, I say that with not a fucking ounce of hesitancy. Without a question. Now, obviously, I would never put anyone in that position, but he's the kind of guy, he's the kind of friend that would help you bury a dead body. I've done something tragic. Teddy, I need help. He'd help you and then talk some sense into you. And he's just like, you know, I hesitate to say a father figure because he's only a few years older than me, but where I would certainly say like an uncle or an older brother. And, and, and at the same time, Rob and I would do the same for him, right? He's, 
where he has weaknesses and deficiencies. He doesn't know the first damn thing about the internet and tweeting. My friend Rob, Rob has a team of people that send out Teddy's tweets. He texts them to them. They edit them, give input and tweet. <laughs> um, you know, I record all the shit on my end when we record the podcast. We send a cameraman and a, you know, uh, audio video guy to his house to record his end, but that's just the way it is. Like where, where I have weaknesses, he picks up the slack. Where he has weaknesses, we pick up the slack and we have like the most incredible team. And it's, we cover for each other. When I was in Mongolia, I was like, guys, I'm not going to be able to record. We recorded a episode in advance so we could release it on the regular cadence. He was in Ireland for a wedding last week. So we recorded two weeks worth of podcasts and put them up accordingly. Matter of fact, one of the big fight plans we're recording today, the Thursday before, um, Spence Crawford and, um, Dustin Poirier and Justin Gaethje. So we've recorded fight plans where we get in the ring and tell people what to look for. We Anytime there's a huge fight, we release those on Thursday. So that comes out tonight. Today is July 27th. So that's a, those are big episodes. And uh, yeah, that's how I got started with Teddy. It's been uh, it's been like a dream come true. I mean, the recognition and, and attention I've gotten from that is like something I could have never imagined. Like going to fights and having fans recognize me and want to take a picture with me is like something I'll never get over. Like, the first time someone asked me to take a picture, I'm like, this motherfucker wants me to take a picture of him and his friends. And he's like, no, I want you in the picture. I'm like, really? Why? And they're like, oh, dude, big fan of the podcast. And I was like, oh, awesome. Fuck yeah, man. Take a picture. I'm like, I'll take a picture. I'll give you 20 bucks <laughs> for asking. Beautiful. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. So I want to throw a quick closing questions at you so I can let you go, especially if you've got recording to do today. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I would say one of the most impactful books that I read as a young man was uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I love that one. I also like Ryan Holiday's uh, book, The Ego is the Enemy. What about uh, films and documentaries? Any of those that you love? Um, I love, love, love documentaries. There's so many good ones. I mean, in, just in terms of things that are topical, I love the Four Kings documentary about Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, and Duran. Um, the Oscar De La Hoya documentary that just came out was excellent. Um, yeah, I could go on forever. I love sports documentaries. Well, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, yes, Teddy Atlas. I would love to get him on if you're able to help me with that. <laughs> That's always a fine line is figuring out how to ask people for favors. I always think... How can I add value to Ken's life to get him to make an introduction for me when it's completely self-serving? These are good lessons for everyone listening. When I think I've got to ask someone for something and I barely know them, like, how can I ask without seeming like I'm asking? Fine line. It is a fine line indeed. In the worst case, it's a no. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's why I always say it's like, hey, if you ask and they say no, you're in the same position you're in right now. Exactly. Just show up. All right. Um, That's it. <laughs> so the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? I love sitting in my office and watching sports and watching fights. Um, and I also love throwing passes, football passes with, the, with, my, uh, with my children. 
and playing like, you know, shooting hoops with them in the driveway. We play basketball every night. So I'd say just like spending time with the kids without any agenda and like kind of following their lead. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the very final thing, if people want to reach out to you, learn more about you, where are the best places online or social media? Google. I don't know what my Instagram name is. Maybe at Ken Rideout underscore or something. I'm easy to find. If you just Google my name or search my name on Instagram, it should come up. Most of the shit that I post from a social media standpoint is on uh, Instagram. And I also post all my workouts on Strava. And I guess you can just search my name there and it should come up. Brilliant. Well, Ken, I want to say thank you. I wish I, I wish I cared. I wish I cared more about growing my social media because there's tremendous opportunities there to like spread a message, uh, raise brand awareness for different brands that I use and I'm affiliated with. I'm just, just doesn't come naturally for me. I feel like a narcissistic asshole every time I'm talking to the camera on Instagram, like, Hey guys, here's what I do for hydration. Like, I mean, some people care. I, I know. I don't know. I, I've got to get better at that. <laughs> it's, I think, I think it's a slight skewed thing as far as the impact that it has. I mean, some people think that, you know, once you have X amount of followers and you post that you ate a Snickers bar, then the whole world's going to go buy Snickers, you know? So, uh, you know, I think if you're, if your work is speaking for itself and people can learn about you in, you know, certain areas and on podcasts, for example, then, uh, you know, the, the videos on Instagram are probably the, you know, the bottom of the list. <laughs> Fair. Well, I want to say thank you so much for, you know, coming on the show, being so generous with your time and your story and, you know, and some of the amazing things that you've been a part of. But I think the biggest thing is it's it's story of hope, you know, and, for, and every single one of us, like you said, none of us are special, but there's a lot of doom and gloom stories out there when it comes to mental health and addiction. But it's so empowering for people to, to hear, yeah, when you can get past it and that suffering can become a superpower. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show today. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks to Shay for arranging.